Hey, this is Danny Heifetz from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Craig Horlbeck, and Danny Kelly. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, December 6th. It's been kind of a weird year on the big deals front in entertainment. There's a bunch of reasons for that. High interest rates, inflation, antitrust concerns, the bursting of the peak TV bubble, and the strikes, of course. That work stoppage also effectively killed talent deal-making for about six months, as any bored agent could tell you this summer. And it's only now starting to recover. At the beginning of this year, we had Sarah Fisher on the show. She's the media deal reporter from Axios and a contributor at CNN. She predicted it was going to be a buyer's market this year. That turned out to be true. Yet there were some bigger ticket transactions in the space. The WWE finally sold to Endeavor, the sports and talent agency company. CAA, Endeavor's big rival in the talent space, they saw their majority stake sold to the French luxury goods billionaire Francois Pinot. The agency was valued at about $7 billion there. Big win. Paramount sold its book publishing division, Simon & Schuster. Microsoft closed on Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. I think we're going to see a lot more M&A next year in this space, even if the uncertainty around the economy and the presidential election might cause companies to think twice. So I wanted to have Sarah back on the show to review the year in Hollywood dealmaking and look ahead to 2024. She's got a very keen eye on this stuff. What's in store on the deal front? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellamy, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Sarah Fisher, who is the senior media reporter at Axios and a returning champion for this show. Welcome back, Sarah Fisher. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So you came on the show in February, earlier in the year, and we talked about what we thought the year in deals might look like. You said it was probably going to be a buyer's market for a bunch of reasons, and that one of the big deals might be Endeavor buying WWE, which ended up coming true. That was a $9.3 billion acquisition. And there were a couple other things you said might happen. You looked at you know Candle Media, the Kevin Mayer roll up that potentially slowing down and not being able to find anything to buy, which turned out to be true. Um, looking back on this year in the media deal landscape, what stands out to you? What were the big deals that you paid attention to that you were following? What were the trends that surprised you? Give us your, your, your year in review. 
Yeah, I think the biggest trend is that the era of cheap money is over and it's really hard to finance deals. We sort of knew this going into 2023. It's absolutely true going into 2024. And that has definitely slowed deal volume. We're also seeing venture capital firms just becoming so much more cautious. And in the era of a lack of optimism in, you know, interest rates going down meaningfully, I think the trend I'm looking at heading into 2024 is fewer strategic deals and a lot more private equity firms buying stuff up because it will become the easiest way for folks to finance some of these big deals, get them across the finish line. All right. So we'll get into 2024 in a second, but I want to look back at the year because it's not like there weren't deals. I mean, there were CAA got bought. That's a a $7 billion valuation uh, went from the Pinot acquisition of CAA, the talent agency, Simon & Schuster was sold. Finally, after a couple of years of regulatory issues, uh, the private equity group KKR bought that one for $1.6 billion. Um, yeah. Finally, the Activision Blizzard deal went through. That's a $69 billion deal after a two-year regulatory battle. Uh, so there were deals that happened. What do those have in common with each other? Or were they just sort of the deals that actually made it over the finish line and hundreds of others didn't? Yeah, well, we definitely saw more agency consolidation. And I think that's going to continue to be a trend. You know, we are talking, you just mentioned CAA. Obviously, Endeavor has said that it's exploring some strategic alternatives for itself. You know, Wasserman <laughs> bought- Yeah, Burlstein. under duress with a gun to their head and the market rejecting- the uh, Endeavor proposition, they're going to probably have to go private. I think Silver Lake, the money behind Endeavor is now evaluating who they want to do that with. Um, Who do you think that's going to be? Do you have any sense of the money that's going to be behind taking Endeavor private? No, but I do think that it's not assumed that it's going to necessarily be a Silver Lake deal. I think that there's a bunch of different things that are being considered right now. And there's a bunch of things that are on the table. But just you know, going back in time, you're asking sort of the big things. I do think agency consolidation was a big theme. Yeah, I think in the sports world, the big thing looking ahead is the NBA. But looking backwards, it was the fall of Diamond Sports and the RSN model. Mm-hmm. Um, I think PGA Live was a big deal because it represents the extent to which foreign money may or may not start to infiltrate more Hollywood deals. Yeah, that was deals. the golf deal. What's the status of that one, by the way? You know, still being investigated by regulators and observed. You know, <laughs> one of the things I'm eyeing is whether or not Redbird gets uh, regulatory approval in the UK for um, potentially buying the Spectator and the Telegraph two big yeah, papers that's there. the Jeff Zucker company, Redbird IMI, which is also backed by Abu Dhabi. And there's some concern over whether the foreign companies should be allowed to own two of the biggest newspapers in the UK. Um, That seems like it'll go through, or at least the Zucker side is confident that it will go through. I mean, if you talk to conservative MPs, I think they don't feel as confident. (laughs) Probably not. But the reason I mention it is because we did start to see more momentum in 2023 of foreign investment coming back in. And that's a big deal, Matt, because after Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, mm-hmm. you saw a lot of Hollywood back off from some of these foreign deals. Sure, especially the Saudis. Absolutely. And then to see the Live PGA merger go through, to see the Qatari fund put 5% stake into the Washington Wizards, it starts to feel like it's going to come back. And then 
this war between Israel and Hamas happens. And I'm curious to see, you know, between that and how UK regulators eye the Redbird deal, whether or not there becomes a chilling effect for foreign money coming into Hollywood and media. So that was a big theme. I mean, I don't want to lump all of these countries together because I think there is a difference between Qatari money and Saudi money and Abu Dhabi money and some of these other territories. It will be interesting to see what Endeavor does because famously Ari Emanuel gave back the money that the Saudis had invested into Endeavor after the Khashoggi murder. But then we had Mark Shapiro, the president of Endeavor, on the show a couple months ago, and he said, we're not averse to Saudi money. You know, we are. We did a thing then, and we are now a different company. They have the WWE, which already has yeah. relationships in the Saudi region. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Endeavor goes that route and has Saudi money in whatever transaction they do that takes them private. Yeah. And I think the other big look back thing has been Disney. That's been the whole game in 2023. Do they find a strategic partner for ESPN? Who's it going to be? Iger says he's selling their linear TV assets. Then he says it's just a trial balloon and he's not. He finally gets the Hulu deal done. So a lot of the momentum, I think, this year revolved around Disney and um you know, it's not over for them. Well, that's an $8 billion check. Mike Cavanaugh at NBC Universal uh, just announced that that check did, in fact, clear yep. <laughs> Dizzy's $8 billion check. Uh, I would, I think they should deliver it like Price is Right style, where like they show up, um, you know, Publishers Clearinghouse, and there's a Iger with a, a oversized novelty check that they just give to Brian Roberts. That did not happen. It was a wire transfer. But $8 billion is not nothing. I mean, that's bigger than almost all the media deals this year. And it just sort of was like, oh, yeah, that happened. Because the question is, how much more is Disney going to have to pay for Hulu? Yeah. Well, and by the way, I'm glad you mentioned Kavanaugh, because at that same conference, I think he sort of poured cold water on major M&A for Comcast. Mm -hmm. And that's been a big thing that we've been talking about. What does Comcast and Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery do in the need for scale? And I think it was assumed that after one of the tax provisions expires early next year or next spring, that there would be this consolidation frenzy. And something that's changed, Matt, is I'm starting to see more momentum and partnership between these premium publishers, the you know companies I just mentioned, and the tech firms. There was a report out that you know Paramount may consider bundling its service with Apple. Well, does that help it? to hedge against having to do large-scale M&A? Probably not, but it might buy them some time. Yeah, we talked about that. I mean, I think the bundling stuff is a big story, but it also behooves Paramount to have that story out there because that's going to be one of the big targets for 2024. Let's get into 2024 because I think one of the big deals we probably will see is a sale of Paramount. We've talked about it on this show. And when I saw that story about the potential partnership between Apple and Paramount Plus, I was like, ooh, that's interesting because that's going to juice the stock, which might mean that Paramount put that out there because it's anticipating selling. What's interesting about Paramount is they've been trying to sort of manage their finances for a while ahead of any potential deal. You'll mm -hmm. remember they had this agreement with BDT Capital Partners, which is Warren, Bank Warren Buffett's banker a few months ago, a preferred equity deal. And you know, I think they feel good, better about their finances than they did a little while ago. But what's clear now, it was clear before, but what is clearer now is they really don't have the scale. Like there's no choice. They are backed into a corner. Oh, they got to sell. They got to sell. They have to 
something. Yeah, I know it's Sherry Redstone's choice and, you know, she can do what she wants, but any reasonable person would get out now. And they have, they've skinnied down. I mean, this past year, they just selling off Simon and Schuster and they've sold the real estate and they sold Bellator, the MMA group, and they are doing the kinds of things you do before you sell. Yes. Tried to sell BET, although that didn't quite work out the way they no, wanted they it to work out. should have sold BET. Should have sold BET. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's the question. What happens to them? Obviously, um, and we can get into the regulatory stuff around deals, but they can't merge with a company that owns a broadcaster. So there have been conversations about whether or not they just merge their streaming services. You know, mm-hmm. could uh, Paramount Plus merge with Max or merge with Peacock and have to, you know, could avoid some of the regulatory concerns about merging with a company that has a broadcaster. It doesn't make sense for them to divest their broadcaster. That's like the majority of their value is CVS. Um, So they're going to have to figure out some sort of workaround or sell to what I guess is going to be the case, some sort of private equity play. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. So let's get into 2024 with the private equity. Why do you say that this environment is ripe for a bunch of PE plays? Is it just because nobody else is willing to pay the interest on these deals? Nobody else has the scale of capital that these companies, that these PE firms do? Yeah, I think a lot of folks don't want to pay the interest on these deals. Like, we're not talking about interest rates going down meaningfully, just very marginally next year. They might team up, a strategic might stream up, team up with a private equity firm to help finance a deal, but PE is going to be, I think, a lot more heavily involved. Um, On the regulatory front, something to note is I think the FTC got weaker this year. You know, they try to go after Microsoft Activision Blizzard. They failed. And I think what that's going to do is set up a world where it becomes easier for some of these deals to go through and get passed because Lena Khan does not have the firepower that she did when she first took uh, that position. Well, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop her. She could raise objections to all sorts of deals and just keep losing and losing and losing. It still throws a wrench in these deals for a year or two. It's true, but I think that she's going to have to pick her battles. I don't think she has the capacity to sue every, sue to block every single solitary deal. It's just going to be too much. And you have to remember, she's also dealing with all of the big tech firms that she's suing, all of the major lawsuits that are coming out around consumer deception with AI. I think it's going to be a little bit more of a back burner to have a distressed industry going through a few mergers for her. Yeah, you mentioned the reverse Morris Trust, which is the prevention of a deal for Warner Brothers Discovery until April of next year. When that expires, the speculation has been that they are open for business and ready to merge with either Comcast or some other company. Um, But it sounds like you're a little less bullish on that now. I've always thought that that's been the play from the beginning and that John Malone, the shareholder of Warner Discovery, is just sitting there waiting for this to happen and they're doing the best they can in the meantime. 
but that's the play. I still think it's the play and I'm still bullish that that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. What I'm less bullish about is I think if you take a look at who the potential partners would be, Kavanaugh kind of shrugging off large scale M&A means that I don't necessarily know that that's 100% definitive going to be their partner. And if it is, is it through some scaled back JV where they combine streaming assets, but don't necessarily merge the companies? Um, Sure, you could do something with Paramount. You'd need a lot of private equity money to finance something like that. What does that structure look like? So I think they're going to try to explore something, but it's not very obvious to me exactly who it's going to be and what that form it's going to take. Yeah, he could just be tamping expectations yeah, and trying to bring down the price of any deal. Brian Roberts was out there talking about, you know, the Hulu deal and maybe they would buy Hulu. Maybe they wouldn't. And it was all, it all seemed to me like posturing and they're still out there talking about how valuable Hulu is to try to get that valuation up. So Disney has to pay them more to buy them out. Yeah. But one thing I will say, Matt, I can't see them ever letting go of any sort of, um, content business. And the reason being, obviously, we know the cable business is in terminal decline, but their other main business, the broadband business, is not super hot right now. Broadband subgrowth has slowed meaningfully. And if you are Comcasting your three-legged stool, one of those legs has been pulled out from underneath you, which is cable. You want to become a one-legged stool and just have your broadband biz while you're trying to build the mobile broadband biz, it's just not stable enough. So I can't imagine them getting out of content. You know, do they find a JV or do they acquire something is much more likely to me than them ever divesting NBC. The Warner assets are pretty complimentary. I mean, they're both in TV. They're both in, well, Comcast is in theme parks and Warner has the Harry Potter property in the Comcast theme parks. And obviously they've got two movie studios that are about 400 yards from each other in Burbank and Universal City. So they're, they're pretty complimentary companies there. God, that would be so disruptive if they merge those companies. So many people would get fired. Yeah. Well, and that also, you know, bears the question of what do you do ahead of a merger like that? If you're David Zasloff, do you try to sell off even more assets because you know that things are going to be cut out anyway because of synergies you know i'm obviously thinking about the news example did he try to sell cnn and spin that out and get you know somewhere between seven and nine billion dollars for that we'll see and i should know i'm an analyst a contributor for cnn um who's a buyer this year is there is there someone that you think is on the hunt media companies streamers like should netflix just swoop in and buy paramount and get rid of all the cable stuff and take the studio and the land in Hollywood and be done with it. I think that the big tech firms are definitely buyers of rights. They might be buyers of individual smaller studios and talent. I don't see them coming in and buying major, you know, Hollywood conglomerates. A companies like Apple and Netflix have shown themselves to be very adverse to doing those types of deals because of culture clashes. Oh, I'm so sick of the Apple gonna buy Disney stuff. I I, I don't believe that for one second. No, I think, you know, the buyers, like I said, it's private equity firms that can help these distressed assets milk some cash. Other than that, I don't see many big strategics coming in. There are some firms, you mentioned Candle, that they, Candle's currently owned by Blackstone and they are going to want some sort of liquidation event soon. Have they done anything this year? Um, They've had a few hits in some regards. I mean, Moonbug continues to be 
Sure, but that's an asset they bought last year. I'm, they were supposed to be this acquisitive company, and they've sort of stopped. No, and my sources inside the company have said, you know, they're happy that they're not in a perilous position. They're still profitable. The assets that they've bought have proven to be pretty good. You know, if you think about Reese, her uh, Hello Sunshine studio, they probably overpaid for it, but it's paid off. You know, has the, it? a lot of the it, yeah, there have been a good amount of hits, and you have to, if you have to think about her IP, it's been pretty good. It's been fine, but the strike really slowed everything down for six months. Yes, we haven't even talked about that. I know, a lot of these companies that uh, I have heard had pretty lofty projections for the year are not making their projections because of the strike, and i got to assume Hello Sunshine would be one of those because there were six months of no deals. But no, you're, t- you're 100% right. I mean, Candle is has definitely been impacted by that. But I think they're not panicked is the way I would put it to you. Um, If you think about what their future holds, they have to liquidate. There's three options. Do you IPO? I think personally, if they were really planning an IPO, we would be hearing about that roadshow. I don't think that's being actively discussed. And and now I... uh... Mayor and Stags are consulting for Iger. Like I, I think if you're going to IPO, you are 100% focused on your day job. Yep. So I don't. I think that is out. Uh, selling to a strategic. You know, everyone talks about it being Disney. I don't think that Disney is very acquisitive uh, for a production studio right now. They're trying to offload assets. Yeah. Um, and then the other option, which seems more realistic to me, could be uh, you just sell it to a different private equity firm, or you sell a stake to a different private equity firm. Yeah, but who's buying that? I mean, the 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 narrative around Candle is that they almost surely overpaid for these assets. Yeah, but that's the only option, right? I think, or to me, the most realistic option. If you're Blackstone, like you want your money out. So how do you do that quickly when it's hard to find a strategic and you're not going to IPO? You know, you find someone with money who's going to yeah. be able to give you that out. What's a company you're keeping an eye on? Because for me, it's the Peter Chernin company, North Road. I mean, they've made a couple of acquisitions this year in the production space. They bought the company, oh, bought a yeah. stake in the company that makes Cheer. They bought a stake in Questlove's company. They are. They brought in David Nevins. They are, if uh, you know, in talks to bring in Jeff Shell to run their sports and, and and entertainment stuff. So they are definitely out there in the market trying to get deals. I think twenty twenty four could be a big year for North Road. I agree. And they're pretty quiet. You know, they don't come out and say, uh, we're going to be doing this big play. I think that they're trying to sort of come at you from behind with it. Right. Well, they saw what happened to Candle. They declared themselves like the new, you know, studio. And then it's like six months later, it's like, what? Uh, What are you guys doing? Yeah. I think Wasserman is going to continue to be uh, acquisitive. Now, Casey Wasserman owns a sports agency. He bought a management company. We actually had him on the show uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, he could be he could be in the market. Yeah. You know what's interesting too? One thing I'm following, Matt, is there's been this rise of what we call the like parallel sort of patriot economy where investors are starting to put money into right-wing entertainment and right-wing consumer media companies. There's this guy, Omid Malik, who's backing Tucker Carlson. Um Daily Wire. Yeah. Daily Wire is very profitable, but I know for a fact that you have hedge funds and strategics who are super interested in that company because of the margins are so good. And so the thing I'm actually looking for is 
do you start to see a splintering in Hollywood that impacts dealmaking, where some companies are perceived as being like the brands for left-wing entertainment, some for the right? And do they find partners based off of that ideology? And also, what does it look like for a company like Disney if suddenly the total addressable market for entertainment audiences in America is divided by party? You know, Disney's been the one game in town. Does that, does its audience get split in half? And what does that mean for them? Hmm. Well, that's funny because obviously Iger made those comments this week about how they're ending the, or curtailing the messaging in their films. And that was perceived by many, including myself, as a message to the creatives of his company that they don't want as progressive messaging, or at least that's not the priority there. I think he's seeing a potential problem here and Disney turns into a brand that is not for everybody. Yeah, and it should, it should be top of mind for him considering the year they've had at the box office. Obviously, there's a lot of disruption still in the theatrical space. We're very curious to see, you know, Cineworld emerge from Chapter 11. AMC is all over the place, but I imagine there will continue to be consolidation there. Well, they have a ton of debt. And they, yep. they are able to raise more money, AMC, but the next six to eight months in theaters are going to be really challenged because of the strikes. So they're going to have to raise more money. So we'll probably see some deal making there. The problem is, obviously, the interest rates are an issue for these companies yep. because it's not free money. Um, it's funny you mentioned that the right-wing and left-wing media could see bifurcation. It, there was an announcement today that uh, there, there's a new company backed by private equity that is... They're called Wonder, and they are doing faith-based programming, which isn't necessarily right-wing, but tends to appeal to a more conservative audience. And two of the investors in that are Lionsgate and UTA, the talent agency, more traditional Hollywood companies. Um, there's also the you know Powerhouse and Sovereign, so you know, two private equity firms. But it shows that the traditional Hollywood players are recognizing the value of those audiences and trying to capitalize as well. The one thing we haven't talked a lot about, Matt, which is the deal of all deals, is what's going to happen to NBA rights next year. And I know that you know we don't want to talk solely about sports, but it matters because it has a trickle-down effect for what big entertainment companies can do with their capital if they decide to go all in on NBA rights or not. You know, the I think conventional knowledge is that ESPN and Warner Brothers Discovery, which has aired games on its cable networks, will try to broker deals. But ultimately, the NBA is going to try to find streaming partners, bring it into the 21st century. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about it on the show. And I think the player for NBA rights that doesn't get talked about enough is probably YouTube because yeah. they are just sitting there. And, you know, I think that they are happy with the Sunday ticket arrangement. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily going to make their quarterly numbers for them, <laughs> but I think that they are happy with that. And I think that they are going to go after NBA. And if you've got YouTube, Amazon, Apple, all clamoring for the streaming portion of the rights, the NBA obviously is not going to solely put the games on streaming. There's going to be linear components to th these deals. So those three streamers fighting it out for the streaming portion of the NBA will be really interesting. And then there's the in-season tournament, which go to, could go to a place like Netflix. It could go to one of these other streamers that doesn't have full rights. Amazon has indicated that they want playoffs if they're going to do a deal. So maybe they wouldn't just take the in-season tournament. A lot of variables. 
ton of variables. I think of all those firms, they're all pretty serious. What I don't think Netflix is. No. No, I think there's. I think what Netflix does is they pull up a seat to the table. They gather as much data as possible, and they use that to help inform how they're going to make ancillary programming. You know, sports dramas. Yeah. And they're not really serious right now about putting up money for live sports rights. Maybe not right now. I I, I agree. Probably not right now. But at, at some point, we, we you know they're going to have to do this at some point. But yeah. Probably not right now. All right. So give us big picture next year. The landscape. Are we talking about another buyer's market? Are we talking about a recovery? Are we talking about a boom in the deal market in 2024? It's not going to look much different than it did at the end of this year. Like I said, I don't think interest rates come down a lot, which means money is still not cheap, which means that people are going to have a harder time raising a lot of debt, which means that the buyers will have an upper hand. I think because that tax provision expires, there will be a lot more chatter around large-scale M&A. But I don't think you're going to see everything collapse all at once. I think deals will take a long time to hammer out because of the financing logistics I just described. One thing I'm curious about is the role that activist investors are going to continue to play next year. You're seeing Disney's being put under a lot of pressure because of Trion and Nelson Peltz. You know, News Corp was targeted by an activist. The New York Times was in terms of the media companies I cover. I think that they will continue to put a lot of pressure on publicly traded firms. Uh, and then the last thing is, I think, you know, you have some public firms that because of the economic situation are just going to call it quits and go private. We talked about Endeavor. I mean, I think BuzzFeed, it's not exactly Hollywood, but BuzzFeed's another media company that'll probably go that route. Uh, maybe some uh, smaller entertainment companies, studio types. I think the public markets are just going to continue to be brutal for media. Interesting. They don't value it as much as we do. They definitely. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Sarah. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, it happened. The long national nightmare is over. SAG AFTRA ratified its new contract with the studios. 78% in favor was revealed last night. We could celebrate the end of six months of strikes and labor problems in Hollywood. The AI robots are here. They won. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know. The next day, the studios just unleashed the AI. <laughs> the Terminator is going all across town now to just take everyone out. Um, that was the big problem that a lot of people didn't think this would get ratified because of the opposition to the AI provisions, which let the studios experiment a little bit. 78%, not exactly the 99% that the writers ratified with. Um, and a little bit lower than typical. Only 38% of members turned out to vote on this. There's 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA. Only 38% of members voted. 38% actually feels high to me considering how little people probably actually earn a living acting. That is probably true. Um, Most of them are not full-time actors. Uh, What is it? Only about 19% made enough money last year to get health insurance. So most of them are not. That was the whole problem during the strike is that most of the actors in the union do not work. So they have different incentives when it comes to accepting a deal or continuing to be on strike. But now it's over. My prediction is this is the end. Like, IATSE, the other, the the below-the-line union, is starting to look forward to their negotiation in the spring. Their deal is up uh, at the end of the spring, and some believe that they potentially could strike, which would lead us down this path all over again. 
But my prediction today is I just don't think the industry has the appetite for that. And there will be pressure on all sides not to have this happen again. We're just now starting to see the real lasting impact of these strikes. The next six to eight months are going to be brutal, especially for movie theaters because of all the delays. We're seeing it in the annual reports for these companies. Like the, this industry really did suffer. Um, no, you know, no disrespect to the gains of the unions got. I know they're very happy with that, but there was a lasting impact on this industry from the strikes. So I just don't think the appetite is there. And IATSE, not great for them, but I do think they will take a deal and not strike in the spring. All right, that's the show. I want to thank my guest, Sarah Fisher, producer Craig Holbeck, and I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. <laughs>